Good evening, friends, and welcome back to Professor Pastor Paul's Midweek Bible Festival. We're going to start off today with a little bit of discussion about the Pentateuch, which you know is the first five books of the Bible. As I have mentioned in previous installments of Professor Pastor Paul's Midweek Bible Festival, many of the stories found in the Pentateuch are told multiple times. Creation of the world, Noah's Ark, the call of Abraham, the receiving of the law at Sinai, and others. These different versions represent distinct sources, and they have been woven together by another party who came at a later date to create our biblical text. To very careful, practiced readers of the original languages, these sources read very differently. They use different writing styles. They prefer different words and images. They employ different names for God. And in the academic world, there are three sources, maybe, maybe a fourth, but at least three sources, and they've been labeled J, P, and E. doesn't really matter what those things mean. Just know that there's at least three distinct sources for the first five books of the Bible that were later woven together by another party. This week's story is one of those that is told multiple times. It is the story of Sarai, Abram, Hagar, and Ishmael. On Sunday, David will preach on the E version of this story found in Genesis 21. Tonight, I will cover the J version, which is found in chapter 16, which actually has a little bit of P in it as well. Now, tonight's version of the Hagar story comes before Abram's and Sarai's names are changed and before Isaac is born. And David's version, we'll talk about on Sunday, comes after that. So tonight we'll be talking about Abram and Sarah or Sarai. Um, and Isaac does not show up in tonight's version. But on Sunday, David will be talking about Abraham and Sarah, and Isaac does show up. So don't let this confuse you. All right? Here is our text for this evening from Genesis 16, starting with verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. She had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, You see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my slave girl. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived for ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife. Abram went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my slave girl to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Your slave girl is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar, and she ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, 
slave girl of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said to him, I am running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, now you have conceived and shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall live at odds with all his kin. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are Elroy. For she said, have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. So, that's our text for the evening. First thing up, let's be reminded of the problem. Abram and Sarai have no children, despite God's promise to make of them a great nation. The only way to become a great nation back then was to have children. None seemed to be forthcoming, and Sarai was barren, which was in that day and in that place a great shame. So that is the problem. No children. What to do? Well, Sarai decides that what to do is tell Abram to have a child by her slave, Hagar. Now, this was not the super radical move it would be today. In that day and place, in such a situation, it was standard operating procedure. We see this later in Genesis 30 when Rachel and Leah give their maids Bilhah and Zilpah to Jacob as wives. So that seems weird here and now, but it was not weird there and then. So Sarai suggests Hagar to Abram, and Abram says, sure thing, it works. Hagar, who remember is Egyptian, conceives. But then this, here it comes. When Hagar saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Now the notes in the NRSV suggest another more suggestive translation. Instead of she looked with contempt on her mistress, perhaps it was this. Her mistress was lowered in Hagar's eyes. Hagar's inner response inverts the standard power structure, and this enrages Sarai because all of a sudden, the slave, who's usually at the bottom of the hierarchy, is looking down on Sarai. So that's a problem for her. Sarai's move is to blame Abram and to transfer Hagar's contempt onto him. I gave, she said to him, I gave my slave girl to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. Sarai says, may the wrong done to me be on you, Abram. He buckles easily, saying, do what you will with Hagar. She's yours. So Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar, and Hagar ran away. I must pause here to say that our heroes of the faith, Abraham and Sarah, are coming off very poorly in this particular episode. 
Now, one is tempted to say when one comes across a hero of the faith who has uh, not perfect, to say something like, well, thank God for picking such real and imperfect people, indeed. But that's a little lazy, and it keeps us from looking squarely at the story. So let's be clear about their particular sin, Abraham's and Sarah's particular sin. Here we have them punishing another human being, a fragile, vulnerable, unprotected human being at the precise time that she needed kindness and support above all else. We don't know what exactly did to Hagar to punish her, but it was bad enough that the wilderness, that place of death and threat and danger, started looking pretty good to Hagar. And why did they treat Hagar this way? What was the sin? because they imagined that their positions of power had been threatened, not in any real or concrete or immediate way, but only in the mind of one single truly powerless and needy individual who had no choice at all but to be involved in this mess. She had no power over any of this. Hagar had none. So Hagar runs to the wilderness and travels towards Shur, which from Canaan lies in the direction of Egypt. Now this, friends, is super interesting. Think about it. Sarai oppresses Sarai, the, the Canaanite, the Israel, the, the, the Canaanite, oppresses her Egyptian slave and drives her into the wilderness. Then Hagar, the slave, flees Canaan and passes into the wilderness in the direction of Egypt. This is an ironic reversal of the Exodus theme in which the Egyptians oppress their Israelite slaves who eventually flee from Egypt and pass into the wilderness in the direction of Canaan. There's a very nice, clean inversion here. And to cap the whole thing off, Hagar meets the Lord in the wilderness just as the Israelites did in the wilderness. Well, she meets the angel of the Lord anyway, close enough, as we'll see. This angel of the Lord comes across Hagar at a desert spring and asks her what she is doing. Fling from my mistress, Sarai, says Hagar. At this point, the angel of the Lord really says a lot of interesting things. First, he says, Hagar, go back to your oppressors. Return to your mistress and submit to her which frankly seems a little disappointing. Seems like a miracle may be in order here, but I guess the real world situation was that Hagar would die if she did not go back, and this would foil the larger plan, which the angel outlines next. I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude, the angel says to Hagar. You have conceived and shall bear a son, you shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has given heed to your affliction. Ishmael shall be a wild ass of a man with his hand against everyone, etc., etc., and he shall live at odds with all of his kin. So that's a lot of information that Hagar gets from the angel of the Lord in the desert. First note that the angel does not say that the Lord will multiply her offspring but that I will, that the, that the angel himself will, which indicates that the line between the Lord and the angel of the Lord is getting a little thin here, a little bit fuzzy, and sets us up for what Hagar says next. 
Is it the Lord or is it the angel of the Lord? But first, before we get to her words, let's look a little more closely at the angels. Friends, if I were to meet you in the street and say to you these words, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. And then if I told you that those words came from the book of Genesis, and then if I were to ask you to whom those words were spoken, those words, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. If I were to ask you to whom were those words spoken, I bet 10 out of 10 of you would say Abraham. I would. I would say those words were spoken to Abraham, but no. These are words spoken by the Lord to a pregnant, unmarried, poor, black, enslaved woman wandering in the wilderness. That is, the angel grants Hagar the exact patriarchal promise of descendants, echoing the announcements given earlier to Abraham in 1316 and 15.5 of Genesis. Hagar, this unmarried, pregnant, poor, black, enslaved woman, is receiving the promise of descendants, which is usually reserved for the patriarchs at the top of the social system. Again, we see that the first shall be last and the last first. Two more notes on the angel's words. Ishmael means God has heard. So the name signifies that the Lord has given heed to Hagar's affliction, as she said. Also, this whole wild ass of a man business refers to the ancient Arab's warrior ethos, because Ishmael became, according to the story, Ishmael became the father of the Arab peoples. So the Arab peoples are also people of Abraham through his son Ishmael. In the ancient area, Arabs had a very strong, what we might call, warrior ethos and a reputation as fiercely independent people. So this, this is kind of an ethnographic kind of story telling us where these people came from and why they are this way. But finally, let's get back to Hagar, who names the angel. This angel who is apparently the Lord as we have seen, or close enough to it. As I said, the line between the angel of the Lord and the Lord is getting pretty fuzzy here. Hagar names God. Let me go back up to the text here and tell you what it says. She named the Lord who spoke to her. You are Elroy. She gave a name to God, who apparently... Uh, in other words, yes, Hagar gives a name to God. She is the first and maybe the only person in the Bible to give a name to God. She gives him the name Elroy, which means the God who sees, because surely Hagar has been seen and heard. Hagar's naming of God happens, of course, long before Moses is given the name Yahweh by Yahweh. That was a case where Yahweh was the active participant doing the naming. Here, Hagar is the active one, not the Lord. The significance of naming God cannot be overstated. 
the significance of naming God cannot be overstated, for with a name comes both intimacy and power. Hagar has been given the power to name God. Hagar has been given the promise of descendants, the patriarchal promise. This is a very interesting story. On a final note, Hagar is a significant character for the black community. Dolores S. Williams' book, Sisters in the Wilderness, is a deeply influential work of theology based on the accounts of Hagar from Genesis 16 and 21. Williams writes, The African-American community has taken Hagar's story unto itself. Hagar has spoken to generation after generation of black women because her story has been validated as true by suffering black people. She and Ishmael together as family model many black American families in which a lone woman and mother struggles to hold the family together in spite of the poverty to which ruling class economics consign it. I'll say that again. Hagar and Ishmael together as family model many black American families in which a lone woman struggles to hold the family together in spite of the poverty to which ruling class economics consign it. Hagar, like many black women, goes into the wide world to make a living for herself and for her child with only God by her side. With only God. That's it for this week, friends. See you next time when we take up the story, the jolly story of the binding of Isaac. See you then. 